Hello and welcome to On Air with Myrick O'Connell. I'm Howard Kaplan. Today's topic is how can building and business owners safely reopen and reoccupy their facilities in this new COVID-19 world and minimize the potential for these facilities to become new COVID hotspots? Today's guests are Brian Cassicelli, an attorney with the Labor and Employment Law Group at Myrick O'Connell, and Stephen Graham, Principal and Director of the Environmental Risk Management Practice at Corporate Environmental Advisors in Westboro. Corporate Environmental Advisors, or CEA, provides building reoccupancy plans, risk management consulting, incident response and verification testing, plus assistance with ongoing maintenance to address COVID-19 risk to employees and customers. So let's start out today with some of the basic legal issues before we get to Steve, involved in reopening with attorney Brian Cassicelli. Then we'll shift over to Steve Graham from CEA on how to actually do it. So let me just start off with what steps should we take to ensure, let's say, that my workplace is safe for my employees? There's a a fair amount out there, unfortunately, for better or worse, that you have to worry about. And I think one of the main things uh, to to keep in mind is to continually review uh, and follow uh, guidance from the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, guidance from the Centers for Disease Control, and with respect to Massachusetts in particular, uh, the plan for reopening Massachusetts, which I know um, our guest today, Steve Graham, uh, is going to talk about uh, at length. Now, should I require employees to wear face mask coverings uh, in the workplace? Is that something I need to do? Yeah, one of the most um, prevalent questions I think we've gotten uh, is, can I require uh, and should I require? And the answer to both of those questions is yes. Uh, Governor Baker's plan for reopening Massachusetts explicitly notes that uh, individuals, uh, when they're back in the workplace, should be uh, wearing masks. Uh, It doesn't have to be a surgical mask or or a medical grade mask. Cloth masks are okay. There are a few exceptions to that rule. For example, if uh, an employee has a a disability under the Americans with Disabilities Act, such as asthma, uh, or that otherwise interferes with their ability to to breathe, then you might need to make an exception. And there's also potential for uh, the need to accommodate someone's religious beliefs uh, in the workplace as well. And, And in those cases, you'd You'd have to go through what's called an interactive process uh, to kind of see if there is uh, an accommodation, a reasonable accommodation that can be made to to address those concerns. Sure. Now, can I require employees to be tested for COVID-19 before returning to work? Yes, uh, you can. Uh, And I think the only caveat to that is that the test has to be accurate and reliable. And unfortunately, uh, over the past couple of months, we've been able to, as I think as a society, uh, develop a, a fairly significant testing capacities and capabilities that are able to you know, address uh, and, and determine if employees returning to the workplace do have uh, COVID-19. And, and obviously, if they do have COVID-19, uh, they should be uh, precluded from coming back and uh, not allowed to return until certain conditions are met as as set forth by the the CDC guidance. Sure. No, thank you so much, Brian. Now that we know some of the legal basics of reopening, let's talk with Steve Graham from Corporate Environmental Advisors, or CEA, on how to actually reopen safely. Steve, welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Howard. Glad to be here. So the first question I would ask you is, in light of the threat of COVID-19 that we've been living with for a while and looks like maybe a while longer, what steps should companies undertake in getting ready to reoccupy their buildings safely? 
Sure. Well, there's two steps. Uh, first, a deep cleaning, it's called, is recommended. So that's physical scrubbing, which achieves contact and disinfection, particularly of a high contact uh, surfaces in, in workspaces. And uh, that's generally accomplished. It could be by the custodial staff. Uh, often it's a professional cleaner uh, that's that's external to either the custodial staff that's routinely used by the tenant or the uh, landlord. And that is um, an important first step. It's important to understand that what that provides is cleaning and disinfection according to the CDC guidelines. And for most businesses, that should be adequate by itself. If it's a certain kind of business or organization that might have had more contact with COVID cases, for example, hospital, a medical or research lab, an aged care facility, or uh, there's even been some hotels used to host COVID-19 patients, then a verification of cleaning may be required. And that's only accomplished ultimately by sending certain samples, a certain representative sample number from workspaces to a microbiological laboratory. And that does, uh, however, give you a a pass-fail result, which provides uh, even more uh, assurance than the the deep cleaning process. The second part is uh, what's uh, called by Governor Baker, recently rolled this out on May uh, 18th, a COVID-19 control plan. And that's needed by all sectors and industries in the state. And it has a number of mandatory standards for safe office reopening. And these standards uh, not only uh, include, uh, but amplify and go beyond the CDC and the US EPA guidelines for a safe reopening of an office, for example. What are the overall requirements, Steve, for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts COVID-19 control plan for a business? Sure, Howard. So there are four categories that the states identified. And they are as follows, and then I'll mention a bit more in the detail. Social distancing that we've heard so much about, uh, hygiene protocols, staffing and operation, and cleaning and disinfecting. The social distancing is not just maintaining that six-foot dif- distance, but also uh, it's required to uh, adjust the workplace as needed to make sure that that happens. The hygiene protocols is how you keep you, yourself and people around you safe. Uh, staffing and operations really talks about how that is accomplished in terms of, a, of an organizational structure and uh, what requirements such as training that need to be done to make sure everyone understands all the protocols and uh, is able to implement them. And regarding cleaning and disinfecting, we've touched on, touched on that already. There is uh, you know, quite a bit that has to be done with that. There's a cleaning log that has to be maintained, for example. So these, these four categories are all um, addressed in this uh, self-implementing control plan, which is prepared and kept on the premises. It's actually not filed with any state agency, but it must be completed and signed by an authorized uh, representative and there's something called an attestation poster that's placed in a prominent location in the uh, office, typically as one walks in, that affirms that the, the organization has completed a plan. And one important last point on this is even though a plan is in place and it's been required since May 25th, only 25% of the staff can be present at any one time. That is a lot. And uh, we're going to delve a little bit more deeply here because I've heard that there are some pretty detailed requirements beyond what you've talked about, what has to be in the control plan besides these four broad categories. Would you mind giving us some examples, Steve? 
Certainly. And Brian's uh, mentioned, for example, the, the very important um, face covering that's required. And when and where that's required in an office setting, for example, needs to be described in terms of if you're in a cubicle, then you really need to be wearing it essentially throughout the day. If you're in an enclosed office, then you have an opportunity to potentially take it off as long as you're the only one in the office. There's something called an isolation contact tracing and communication plan that has to be part of the, the overall control plan. And that describes how you deal with positive virus cases or contacts and a return to work plan for employees that may have had a positive uh, virus incident. There's also the need to, uh, in these plans, define and, and uh, maintain cleaning protocols specific to the business. I mentioned how cleaning logs are needed. And when, if, I should say, an employee gets the COVID disease, the uh, organization has to clean and disinfect the impacted workspace at a minimum, that immediate area, if not the entire workspace. And so that goes to the point of it's really important to have this plan and everyone buy into it because if uh, just one individual gets sick, then the uh, operation has to shut down, get cleaned before it can be reopened. I mentioned how there's some redesigning of workstations that are needed. There's physical partitions that could be needed uh, that has to be taller than a standing worker, which has been interpreted as roughly six feet. So many cubes are only 48 to 54 inches in height. So you need a little bit more plexiglass between workers um, adjacent to each other. Uh, you're still striving for that six-foot distance as well. And then as people approach, say, a reception desk or someone in a cubicle, they need to be talking behind this, this plexiglass barrier while they're still wearing a mask. So there's quite a, uh, a rush to redesign the workspaces, to get plexiglass that are you know, tailored to the individual work setting. There's also a need to regularly evaluate all the workspaces to ensure in compliance with all the state and federal guidelines and standards. And very importantly, there's the need for training. And so all the things I've mentioned have to be explained and um, Employees need to uh, have you know, received the training, and we recommend that they're actually signing off, that there's a record kept of the training, and that of the plan itself, which is um, on the order of between 15 and 30 pages or more, needs to be read and, and signed by the uh, employee. So it's just mutually understood you know, what the expectations are to keep everyone safe in this reopening process. If I might just uh, jump in there for one second, I think that uh, your point's very well taken, Steve. It's not as if the training has to be done in person. I think we you know, make that clear uh, to, to our listeners. It, it can be as um, simple as an email and closing the plan. And the cover email itself can have some, some uh, talking points and some key points for the readers. Uh, so very, uh, very, very important to, to keep in mind. Hey, Brian, we're, we're usually doing a training through a webex or a zoom zoom has some limitations if you have more than say a dozen people right but it's typically a powerpoint presentation that's reviewed through a webex and that seems to be working pretty effectively that was brian casaselli labor and employment attorney with myrick o'connell in worcester westboro in boston and uh, we have steve graham principal of uh, corporate environmental advisors in westboro Steve, it sounds like a fair amount of effort is involved in preparing one of these plans that you were just talking about. How long does one typically take to prepare? 
So if you're doing this for the first time, and most employers will be doing it really the only time, it it's, can take a in the range of 40 hours or more to prepare this plan. Say if you have, uh, particularly if your staff exceeds 20 people or you have multiple floors of an operation, the standard plan is typically exceeding 15 pages and, and can often go, you know, 30 pages or more. It really depends on the, the size of the operation, the number of employees, the type of activities that are involved. In terms of the training program, when you add that in, that can actually add another 40 hours or more. Uh, not that the training takes really more than an hour or two itself. It's just the logistics of getting everyone set up and preparing and getting the, the training program you know, tailored that's just right for an individual's organization. And we're finding, too, that often uh, management will want to see the draft presentation, have them run through it and answer their questions before it's then rolled out organization-wide. So there's often a, a two-step training program that, that's uh, underway. So, Steve, are you seeing other elements of a plan, including employment considerations, including maybe employee screening requirements as well? Yeah, we are. And, of course, we don't, we're not in, in any form employment uh, experts. That's really O'Brien's realm. But we are including uh, information that's useful to employers. As I mentioned earlier, getting to a a mutual point of uh, understanding in that uh, everyone needs to be part of these plans. And if only one person doesn't be part of the the plan that's put together, then it's going to create problems for everyone in the organization. So we are often recommending that there be a policy statement that the organization prepares. They prepared a plan, they've implemented the plan, they're dedicated to the health and safety of their employees and and within their community. And, you know, that's a positive first step that um, is in the beginning to these plans. And asking the employees to understand and sign the plan is also something that we've seen that our clients have wanted that in there. Uh, You know, there are different approaches to that. Some want that and some don't. But those that do feel that, you know, should there be uh, issues that require resolution later on, that having someone have uh, signed this control plan indicates that they they did fully recognize and understand what the contents were. We've also suggested a a pre-entry employee questionnaire be completed and submitted prior to being allowed to go back into the to the operation. And that's, it's simply a, a one-page form that many organizations have, have put together saying that they don't have symptoms, COVID symptoms, nor have they been in contact with those who uh, may or may not, or in, um, you know, been in localities, including the overseas travel that might have provided exposure to them. So that's a, a first step in which people self-identify if there's any issues. Daily temperature checks are also something that's being required by some employers. There are even some buildings in which they have temperature checks being required before you can enter uh, buildings. Other employers handle it differently. They don't do temperature checks at work. They ask the employee to uh, do the temperature check at home. And One of the big questions I've heard, uh, Steve, is, and I'm sure you hear it all the time, do plans vary between types of building occupants? Because every building has whole host of different types of, of folks, of occupants, say tenant and landlord? Well, they definitely do. And perhaps the biggest is between tenants and landlords. And there's there's some tensions that are been playing out in the, the last month because you have tenants asking landlords what they're going to do, for example, with uh, air filtration. So not every uh, 
office, say, has got their own uh, HVAC system dedicated to their floor. And if not, people are wondering, well, where is the air being circulated? Could there be others in offices beyond theirs that they can't control? And how is the landlord handling those? The U.S. American Society of Heating, Refrigerating, and Air Conditioning Engineers, ASRI, issued in mid-April its guidance, which said that the filtration in uh, the standard HVAC units should be dramatically increased. And that's a financial and sometimes a physical uh, challenge for many landlords. And there's also cleaning that's involved by, on the landlord's part. And the landlord has a lot of other areas uh, and protocols to put in place that a tenant doesn't. For example, in common areas, if you start in the lobby, there may be security. There needs to be you know, posting of signage, one-way directional flows, signs post, posted outside, actually, of what you uh, need before you enter the building, which would be at least a mask and could be a temperature check. And then as you're proceeding you know, from the lobby, perhaps with a security check, perhaps not uh, through a turnstile, or you're on the way to an elevator, perhaps in larger buildings, uh, what about elevator capacity and you're touching elevator buttons uh, along the way? So, um, and then you have, if you have cafeterias or fitness rooms, you know, other types of uh, facilities or uh, opportunities for people to get the COVID to virus. And, and so the landlord has a lot of responsibilities. Uh, the tenant is really just responsible typically for what's in their immediate workspace. But the, the tenants are also asking the landlords, uh, well, how are they going to protect their people from the outer door into their immediate workspace? And I would say, lastly, the landlords who are having to do additional cleaning, uh, a number of them are or issuing invoices to the uh, the tenants for this additional cleaning level that is happening. And uh, they're being asked to participate in that cost, as well as, uh, in a number of cases, we've seen the landlords are asking the tenants, how are they complying? Are they complying with the state's uh, requirement? You know, it is obviously a symbiotic relationship. Uh, one can't exist without the other, landlord and tenant. And it's it's something that does require a, a mutual uh, positive approach to uh, COVID compliance. Definitely. So here's the money question, <laughs> literally and figuratively. Steve, what if any penalties exist for noncompliance of any of this? Right. So yeah, I mentioned how this is a self-certifying uh, compliance plan that needs to be done. There's no agency that a organization, an office, a company submits that to. However, uh, it is mandatory that this plan be prepared with these mandatory standards. And some cities and towns are sending out enforcement agents to do random checks. So in Westboro, for example, we reported as either the building inspector or the board of health agent is randomly checking with the offices and organizations to make sure that they have a compliance plan in check. And as I mentioned earlier, there's something called an attestation poster. So that's a very quick sign when you walk into an office. If they don't have that posted prominently and it's signed by an authorized representative, then you're probably not going to have your compliance plan all set. In terms of you know what penalties were come, it's really unclear at this point. But the fact that you know, some organizations are checking on this. It shows, of course, their you know, dedication to you know, human health, uh, but it also raises the, uh, the concern that people really need to be preparing these plans because there is the threat of potential um, you know, legal action against them. 
One thing I'll, I'll add to that, Steve, you know, it was interesting to hear about the, the cities and towns uh, doing unannounced inspections, is that the uh, Attorney General's office in Massachusetts uh, has put up a, a workplace complaint uh, form essentially on its website uh, for employees uh, of employers to file complaints against the employers uh, for failing to adhere to the requirements of, of Governor Baker's plan and, for example, the attestation poster. Um, developing a policy and otherwise not taking steps that you know, would ensure the, the health and safety of employees. And, and you can bet that, uh, you know, given the um, prevalence of this issue, um, you know, em- employees are going to be uh, aware of uh, their employer's obligations and, and will certainly uh, do what they can to ensure that those uh, obligations are met, uh, given the health and safety at at issue. Makes sense, uh, Brian. So, Steve, I'm just curious, corporate environmental advisors company that you are a principal at and you are a a licensed professional engineer, what is a typical day for your firm and for you right now where there is so much going on? Sure, Howard. Well, there's there's two parts to that. There's what we have to do uh, as an essential service. And we've, we've been active throughout the start of the COVID crisis because we primary mission is health and safety compliance, and that involves uh, both above ground and subsurface uh, impact. So we have continued, you know, for example, in the Worcester area, there are underground storage tanks being pulled out and uh, soil being uh, removed and asbestos that's been, test- been tested and, and overseen. So... Before we approach those job sites, all of the things we've talked about, uh, we have to make sure they're in our our health and typical normal health and safety plans. But it's been amended, you know, to have uh, strong adherence to these standards. And then in our own workplaces, we had to, you know, adjust as well and make sure that we were compliant. And then as far as um, helping others, you know, every day is of course different. But an example day would be. Uh, we're, we're at, we've written a plan and sent it to a client. They're looking at it. They have some questions. Typically, we send we send a draft plan. We see, we've already seen a floor plan because there are a number of modifications that have to be done. So we're recommending what should be done. And then we meet uh, at the office. Uh, this is before everyone is reoccupied, and go over and just walk through physically. And and this is. You know, where we find it, people are uh, appreciating our help is, you know, you can fill this plan up by yourself. Uh, it's when you implement the details of coming into the front door, it's like, all right, well, where do I post things? If I have to do a temperature check, how would that be done? Do we have an office to pull people in? Do we have a logbook? Let's proceed walking down the hallway, you know, with one way in this direction. And we've had to, you know, adjust the cues. We've had to put plexiglass up. So we, we go through that, that, you know, really detailed process of, you know, when you get to the restrooms, you know, there's a number of procedures just entering them, the, the occupancy. Um, so there's a, there's a lot more signage posted and, you know, directions. And um, then there's the communication, which comes into the training program. So once we have a, a plan that makes sense for an individual organization, then we, you know, we'll put together a draft uh, training program. And then that go, we go back and forth on that. And then there'll be a training session that, you know, that will occur. And then after that, we're generally giving a, a training certificate to attendees, which people you know, appreciate. And then the final step is the, the company is, um, should they choose to, have the employees 
and look at the plan and then and sign that and then have the documentation that goes with that. So there really needs to be, uh, I haven't mentioned it before, a, a COVID administrator for each each organization. And, and they've got a fair amount of paperwork that they didn't have before. And that, that may or may not be HR. It, it tends to be more of an operations person, office manager or operations uh, leader uh, working with HR often to, if it's a larger organization. Um, so there's a lot of different steps to go into this thing and our so our day does does vary but those are the kinds of things we accomplish in well either a day or typically a series of days we've been talking with steve graham a principal with corporate environmental advisors a firm that provides building reoccupancy plans risk management consulting incident response and verification testing plus assistance with ongoing maintenance to address covid19 risks to employees and customers. And Steve was just outlining a slice of life, kind of a day in the life of the principal of this company, Steve Graham. Steve, how can businesses and building owners and managers contact you for further information? I think it's simply uh, email me at uh, Stephen with a ph dot Graham at uh, cea-inc.com. And our phone number in Westboro is is there on our website. So it's easy to remember CEA. You know, we'd be glad to provide assistance if people find that useful. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I want to add in here Brian Cassicelli with the law firm of Myrick O'Connell in Worcester, Westboro, and Boston. And how can folks contact you with any questions, Brian, about the legal aspects of reopening their buildings or businesses? Sure. Uh, my email is um, B-C-A-S-A-C-E-L-I at MyrickO'Connell.com. Uh, and you can reach me uh, via telephone at 508-860-1478. Well, thank you both. On behalf of Brian Cassicelli and CEA Corporate Environmental Advisors Engineer Steve Graham, I'm Howard Kaplan. Thanks for joining us and stay safe. This podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Myrick O'Connell. It is intended to inform you of developments in the law and to provide information of general interest. It is not intended to constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. This podcast may be considered advertising under the rules of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. 